Thank you, Pastor. Ah, well, I just want to give you a little idea of what's going to be coming up in the months to come because this is a season where sometimes we have new faces who are with us. So prior to Christmas, we were studying verse by verse through the book of First John, and we'll be finishing that. Um, we have three weeks left. We'll be finishing that after Christmas. We typically go verse by verse through books of the Bible here. We're doing a topical study here for Advent um, and uh, then right after First John, I can't wait, we are jumping into Genesis in the third week of January. It's going to be a six-month study called Beginnings um, to start off the beginning of our year. Um, but today, we're on week two of our Advent series, and I have a little two-minute video to show you to start it off. So we are now entering into week two of the Advent Conspiracy, and it's a four-part series. Uh, last week, we looked at worship fully. This week, we're going to look at spend less. Next week, we're going to be looking at give more. The 23rd, we'll be looking at love all. And then Christmas Eve, we're going to be coming together with our church plant in Point Pleasant. They'll be joining us for a joint service, and we're going to culminate all of that with the idea that we are fully loved in Christ. Uh, we have been using 2 Corinthians 8-9 as a theme verse to teach on all four of these principles. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And as we said last week, all four of these themes are actually touched on in that one verse. It speaks to the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, leaving his riches, and coming to this earth in poverty so that in doing so, he could give all and love all and call a ragtag bunch of sinners to himself to be able to worship the most holy father through the gift of the sacrifice of the son. So our big point the next two weeks is going to be as you spend time, as you spend money, this Christmas season and, and beyond. These principles don't just apply in the month of December. 
do it under the Lord, using Christ as our example and use his example and gospel motivation as a temperament for swiping or for not swiping that credit card or being free to being to doing things out of a spirit of obligation. So we're breaking this passage, um, this second part, into two parts. Um, the first part's going to be uh, part one, spending less, or more accurately, spending intentionally so that we can be more generous when we do give intentionally. And part two, next week, is going to be similar, but it's going to be more about time, realizing that we need to be intentional on what we do not invest our time in so that we're able to invest ourselves more fully into the things that are close to the Lord's heart. Uh, I want to confess my own lack of faith and share with you that this topic is awkward because in this season you have more visitors than any time of year and you have a topic like spend less and 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 my lack of faith is people are going to look at you like oh there's the money guy you know go to church and this is the church that talks about money and they're just trying to shake you down in the holidays look I I don't care about your money I I, I really I, I don't um what we do care about is seeing you free. We do care about your heart. We see, care about seeing you free to say no so that you're able to say yes to what the Lord would have for you. Um, saying no to obligation during this season so you can say yes to grace. Saying no to covetousness so you can say yes to the gift of contentment. Saying no to compulsion. So you can say yes to being led by God's spirit. Um, saying no to the world's burdens so that you can say yes to the Lord's priorities. So as we begin this topic, there are no lack of scriptures that speak to the importance of spending less and saving. There's a ton of verses to go on. There's a lot of wisdom in the Proverbs, there's actually so many verses to go on that it, it just reminded me why I like usually going verse by verse through books of the Bible, because I was like, there's a million. How do you even choose which ones to go on? But just a couple of verses that I have projected up behind me. Hey, you have Luke 14, 18 through 20, you shall tithe all of the year. Oh, that's Deuteronomy. Um, not that one. What? For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We also have Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. I love that. I love the word sluggard for some reason. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. I don't know why the ant is female in that verse, but she is. Um, Proverbs 21, 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And lastly, just another one, Proverbs 30, 24 through 25. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people not strong, but they provide their food in the summer. And you could go on more and more and more scriptures, especially in the Proverbs. There's so many that address this topic. You could also address this by hitting you with all of the different stats that come out regarding spending. Did you know that 
Americans on average, it means the average adult American goes into $1,003 of debt every Christmas, according to a recent study published by LendingTree. Um, the same study showed that the average American will be paying off debt for things spent on Christmas four months after Christmas has passed. Um, if people made minimum payments on that average debt, did you know that they would still be paying off last year's Christmas when next year's Christmas rolls around? 59.9% of Americans use credit to purchase items for Christmas. And uh, one other statistic, people ages 24 through 35 are statistically the most likely to go into debt this season and statistically have the least amount of financial means to be able to pay that debt off when the bill comes in. And I could keep going and going. I came across a million different stats from reputable sites. It only takes a couple of minutes of research. If any of you ever wanted to research them on your own, all of this information is available to you. But I say all that to say this, the stats for spending are available each year, but stats don't change your heart. I could stat you to death, and it's not going to change your heart this morning. You know what they can do? They can make you feel guilty for a moment. But guess what? Guilt doesn't change your heart either. Guilt and shame-based preaching are awesome for producing immediate results. But they will never ever change the heart. I remember when I was doing some chaplaincy work at a Christian high school, and uh, one time they had a bunch of different speakers come in, and I was privileged enough to be on the docket of those speakers. And, and this guy went up and spoke right before me, and boy, was it a good warm-up for me to go on. He, he just shamed this group of 13 through 18-year-olds so much. It was the most guilt-driven message, the most condemning thing I've ever heard, and it finished with, Okay, now come to the altar if um, you don't want to be terrible. And these kids in tears were flocking up to the altar. So if results were what this guy was looking for, boy, did he ever knock it out of the park, right? I remember just struggling as I'm sitting back like, how do I even give my message after they just got that garbage pumped into their ears? So the message I gave was the best thing that you could do today is to not listen to anything that that guy said. And uh, I was not invited back. <laughs> um, I did have one teacher come up to me in tears, though, and thank me and say, I've watched these kids shamed chapel after chapel after chapel, and to just hear somebody come in and say, hey, God loves you, he's gracious, he's never going to stop loving you, he's never going to stop pursuing you, even though that's just the simple gospel, they don't hear that. Thank you. Um, condemnation and guilt are a really, really cheap shortcut. You know what they do? They make the preacher feel good about themselves, and they make the congregation feel terrible about themselves. Because if I want to just give you like five things on why you're probably terrible this Christmas season, you could all leave here saying, I am terrible. Help me to not be terrible. Um, what is that going to do? 
How does that change anything? How does that impact eternity? How does that draw you into the presence of Jesus? Whenever I think about guilt and shame-based preaching, you know, I think about the parable where Jesus says, uh, I liken it unto this. There's this house and there's a demon that comes and enters the house and then you sweep out the house and you remove that demon, but you never came in and you filled it with anything else. So he goes back and he gets seven of his buddies and now you're all the worse for the wear. That's what guilt and shame-based preaching does to you. It says, okay, remove that thing. You know that thing that you came here and you're already feeling terrible about? Let me make you feel terrible enough about it so that you could say, I promise I'm never going to do it again, Pastor. I'm going to be a good Christian. And then um, the Holy Spirit didn't change your heart. The gospel didn't change your heart. The Word of God didn't convict. So then after that guilt wears off and the temptation for that thing comes back in, you're seven times worse for the wear. And aside from the fact that guilt is just a terrible motivator, um, spending the resources that God has given us and seeing them as a stewardship is a gospel issue. Brothers and sisters, hear me on this. It's a heart issue. It's not a wallet issue. It's not a checkbook issue. It's not your bank statement issue. It is a heart issue. So spend less when we started this series was actually supposed to be one of the weeks and we realized as Daniel and I started going through this because they're doing the same series over in Redeemer Point that spend less should never have been a subject on its own. If spend less was enough, I can prove it. If spend less was enough then our hearts would be transformed through minimalism. If you've ever noticed, people are super high on minimalism um, these days. If you watch those, um, uh, those awful shows on HDTV, um, I think they even have a show about minimalism um, today, uh, which is ironic that you spend millions of dollars to produce a show about minimalism. But um, <laughs> that aside, uh, minimalism could be an idol in its own right. Minimalism, you know what it can do? It can clear out the clutter in your garage, but it will never clear out the junk that fills your heart because only Jesus Christ can change a human heart. There's no other way. Only the gospel can change the heart. There's many ways to moralize ourselves to change our actions, but only the gospel can change a heart. So I want you to look with me at a parable that shows that spending less is not quite enough. Turn to Luke chapter 12. It'll also be projected up behind me. We're going to go through verses 13 through 21. I'm going to, uh, to read it here. It said... Um, Someone in the crowd said to him, meaning Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down one of my barns. And I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. For God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So in verses 13 through 14, the man comes with a request. Hey, can you help my brother to divide the inheritance that we're supposed to have with me? That's a real issue. I've pastored some of you in this very congregation through this issue, through some issues, through families, a loved one passes away, covetousness begins to come in, and, and you say, man, this is just way more difficult because not only am I dealing with the loss of a loved one, but now there's a fight going on over the estate. So is this man's request just or unjust? We don't really know just by verses 13 or 14. It doesn't really come up yet in our passage, but in 1215, you begin to see this man's heart for what it truly is. Look with me at verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. This has nothing to do with anything, but have any of you ever um, studied something in one Bible and then you can't find your Bible and then it just looks like foreign words on a page when you're using another Bible? So um, if any of you stole my Bible last week, give it back because I can't find it. Um, but uh, so verse 15. You stole it? The woman you gave me, Lord. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so Jesus is warning in verse 15, be on guard against all forms of covetousness. Jesus uses a really interesting Greek term here. It's the term pleonexia. And pleonexia is a fascinating term. It's, an ancient, it's used in ancient Greek literature. Um, remember, when, when the Bible started to use Greek, Greek had been around for hundreds of years. So this word wasn't originally used in a biblical sense. So to get the idea of what this word meant, I started to go further back into Greek literature. And this is what it's lexically defined as. Pleonexia is an insatiable desire for more. Um, but don't think of this term like an insatiable desire for more of Christ in your life, which is a really good thing, right? That's a good insatiable desire to have. Think of it more like salt water. If you drink of it, the thirstier you're going to become. So since you're thirstier, you begin to drink more because the original thirst was not satisfied no matter how much salt water you continue to drink. So you drink more and more trying to satisfy that initial thirst. And if you do it long enough, you will die. And that's the way covetousness works on the human heart. It tricks us into thinking, I can only fill this itch here that says, oh, oh, I need it, I need it, I need it, by giving more and more and putting it more into it and pumping more into that need. The only way to fill a need is to go and get the object of that need, right? It seems logical, and your heart even begins to convince you of that. I mean, you start to look at your iPhone, and you're like, I can't take this lame iPhone 8 anymore. I need an iPhone, like, 12 now, even though that doesn't exist. But you just, you have to have it um, because your heart possibly couldn't love Jesus without the iPhone 12. Um, and, and it's a bottomless pit. Hear me on this. Covetousness is a bottomless pit. And I'm really hoping that my lame example didn't break my phone or else. <laughs> you know what? 
My covetous heart is probably hoping I did, because then I can go get an iPhone 12, but I digress. Um, so to fill the need for more, you give it more, right? Which only then creates a craving for what? More. Covetousness is a, it's an evil drug. Oh, man. And it perpetuates this lie that the only thing that's going to satisfy your heart is to have more of the thing that is doing the very poisoning of your heart, going back to the salt water illustration. And that's why I said that this isn't really about money or possessions. Even though the message is called spend less, give more, it's not really about money or possessions. Like all of Jesus' teachings, it's completely about the heart. And Jesus cares too much about our hearts to let them wither by drinking salt water that poisons and to not warn us that you're in peril along the way. How many of you are grateful that Jesus cares enough to stop your heart before we just go full-fledged into giving it what it desires? So covetousness is sort of like that old story, the emperor has no clothes on, isn't it? It's so easy to do if everybody around you is doing it. It makes it so simple to covet if I surround myself with all manner of people that are spending their time coveting. And as long as everybody's doing it, we can go along ignoring the fact that it's naked and empty. But in verse 15, Jesus is loving enough to be like that boy in the crowd saying, hey, the emperor has no clothes on. This will not give your heart what you think it will. Be on guard. It's not going to do for you what you think that you're looking for out of this. So back to our passage. In 1216, we actually see that this guy's wealth was likely not out of unjust means. It says, and he told them a parable that the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought for himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So it seems like he just had a really banging year that year, right? And it ended with lots of surplus. There's nothing evil about making a good wage or earning lots of money or having a successful career or doing well in your pursuits. Money is neutral. Jesus isn't after your cash. Jesus is after your heart. If you walk away with any application this morning, Jesus isn't after your cash. He's after your heart. It's not about money. It's about your love for it, the way that you use it, and your motivations behind your usage of it. That's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. That's why I picked probably the most unchristmassy passage that you could possibly pick to be able to use because I love how he just hits on the heart motivations behind giving and spending. And we see a little portal into his heart in the next three verses. Look at verses 17 through 19. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have had ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You notice anything common about the pronouns that are being repeated over and over and over there? Did you know that in those three verses, especially in the Greek, it really, really hits it. Twelve times personal pronouns are used in that text. 
So this man's interest was clear. Himself. He had the trinity of stupidity going on, right? The I, me, and my. His extra was given to himself. He didn't seem to understand that the way that covetousness had come in and begun to grip his heart. And, and when I say that it's a gospel issue, not a money issue, you see the evidence of that so clearly in verse 19, where he's trying to placate his soul. He's like, I, I'm, I'm just going to placate my soul and say, soul, you're good. You're all right, right? You've got enough here. You drink, be merry. Um, this guy's actually trying to convince his soul of something that is not accurate. This man didn't understand the temporary nature of his life. Look, his soul didn't need goods is the point of this parable. The good life is not found in goods or in money. Who is the one that is eating and drinking and being merry in this passage? Himself, and only himself. His future was clearly in his own hands in this passage. And let me tell you, that is the most terrifying proposition that you could possibly have. If you are sitting here today and your future is squarely in your own hands, I'm begging you. Don't leave here with that being the case. Man, you do not want your soul in your own hands. I'd rather have my security be in the Lord's hands, who is abundantly gracious and merciful and have very, very little but have security than to have my life in my own hands and have an abundance. So in verse 20, Jesus reveals his heart for what it truly is. He says, you fool. Today, your soul may be required of you. So, you know, the Bible tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow, right? Um, Matthew chapter 6. If you look at the verses right after this one, it's another teaching on anxiety. Um, if your life were required of you today, let me give you some good news. Warren Buffett's bank account couldn't do anything to change any of that. So don't put all of your hope and money for tomorrow when you have no clue what tomorrow will bring. Savings isn't evil, guys. In fact, it's very wise, and, and you may even be able to go so far to say that it's commanded. If you look at certain Proverbs, like um, Proverbs 21.10 or Proverbs 30.24, but your salvation is not found in the security of your savings, is what I'm trying to get across to you. The good life is not found in your savings. Happiness is not found in your savings. Your security is not found in your savings. That's the point of this passage. To be rich towards God, which is what Jesus asks of him in verse 20, means that he's in control of your life and you aren't. And you're not only okay with that, you rejoice. I don't want to be in control of my life. You know, I spent the first 20-something years of my life being in control of my life, and it was a disaster. And then Jesus came in and became resident president, and he said, I'm going to take over this jammy. And it was the greatest thing that could have ever possibly happened to me. You cannot manipulate that regardless of how many riches you have. Money is something neutral. Okay, money is neutral, but your love of it, 
or your use of it is not. So let me tell you what I'm not saying before I move on. I'm not saying go and spend every penny and bankrupt yourselves. Spending less is good, but spending less or spending more can both reveal a heart that's tied up in possessions if it's not done for the glory of God. Christmas is a great time for generosity. Holidays are a great time to eat, drink, and be married. This guy's problem wasn't eat, drink, and be married. You know that that's actually listed as a command multiple times throughout scriptures in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. This man was generous for sure. His problem is that he was generous to himself. So it's not just about spend less. It's also about spending less so your heart can be free to give more. So let's look at a familiar story of the Magi. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You know the story. The Magi, they come rolling into town. They're looking for this Christ who is to be born in verse 4. And they ask where he's to be found. They're told in verse 6. Herod summons them and pretends like he has interests to go and worship him and says, you, you go find him for me because I'm too lazy to walk three blocks to go find the Messiah. And then after listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star, when they had seen it, arose. And they saw it. When they saw the star, they, received, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going down to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him and opened their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These people are the opposite of the guy who wanted to rip down his barns so that he could have bigger storehouses. They were incredibly generous, but they were generous towards Jesus. How is that different than the man in the previous parable? He was generous, but generous toward himself. The Magi gave gifts that were worth, in today's calculations, thousands upon thousands and thousands of dollars. If you read different commentaries, some will even say that it might number in, in the millions. But even that, it's still not about the money. It's the fact that it's given with a heart of worship. If you want proof of that, do what Jesus instructs us to do. Look at the fruit. And to find the fruit, you need to look no further than my absolute favorite Christmas verse in the whole Bible, Matthew 2.10, which is right in this passage. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And it, that's one of those areas where English just cannot do justice to what the original Greek is in this passage. This is saying when they saw the star and they met the Messiah and they bowed down and worshiped, they rejoiced. And in their rejoicing, they just kept rejoicing. And then they had such joy in their rejoicing that they had to just rejoice because they had so much joy in the way that they were rejoicing. That's the way that the Greek is coming across in this passage. Think of the fruit of that. And then think of the fruit of this guy that had so much that he had to build another barn to go and store it in. And the point being, allow the worship of Jesus to guide you in your generosity and in your savings. Have him be the center of both so that your savings and your giving can be a reflection that Christ completely rules your heart. 
And I'll finish with our theme verse to show that like all things, Christ is the ultimate example. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Do you not know that Christ, being rich, I should just read it rather than butcher my quotation of it. Is it up there? All right. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So let me give you a couple of principles from Jesus' generosity. First of all, Jesus did not give out of obligation. Because guess what? He wasn't obligated to save any of you. He gave out of love. And you want to hear some good news this Christmas season? Christ's sacrifice frees you from obligatory giving. You ever give something out of obligation? You know, where you're running out on Christmas Eve and you're like, oh, I forgot that other person who gave me a gift, so I got I'm just going to tell you, if you're ever doing that for me, keep it. Don't go. I'd much rather meet a nice you later on that day than a mean you that chucks a gift at me and is like, here! (laughs) He frees you from giving out of obligation. Number two, Christ did not give out of reciprocation. Ever been in that spot where you feel like, well, I didn't have that person on my Christmas list, but then they went and did a stupid thing like giving me something, and now i got to go and give them something because they gave me something. <sighs> Let me just throw this out there. If you feel like somebody giving you something obligates you to reciprocation, then you might have an issue with receiving the grace of God. Balancing the ledger is not the same thing as grace. Um, the reason we need grace is because of the very fact that we can never balance the ledger no matter how hard we try it. I mean, grace in and of itself means that Christ threw away the ledger. He was like, the ledger's gone because grace has replaced it. Christ did not see giving himself as a have to. According to Hebrews 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that he gave you himself. He sees it as a get to. The gospel sets you free from a cycle of reciprocation. Number three, Christ did not give to himself. He was in lockstep with the Father. Think of his prayer when he was in in Gethsemane. Father, if, if possible, if there be any other way, let this cup be passed from me. But nevertheless, thy will be done. He was so in lockstep with the Father's will. And Ephesians 1 actually tells us that he chose you before the foundation of the earth so that he could lavish all of his gifts and riches upon you in Christ Jesus. Man, he's so good. Number four, Christ gave the ultimate example for all of eternity of what generosity looks like. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 that Christ, being rich, became poor on his own accord so that you who were poor might be able to become rich through having a rich relationship through your heavenly Father, through the gift of your Savior who came down in poverty. Number five, Christ's gift set our hearts free from covetousness and offers us, as the Puritans put it, that rare jewel of Christian contentment. 
The opposite of covetousness is contentment. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, you know, Timothy, godliness is of great gain when it's coupled with contentment. I often share with people that I meet a lot of godly people, but it's very rare that I get to meet somebody who's truly exuding contentment. Godliness and contentment were supposed to go hand in hand. Number six, Christ didn't hold anything back. He who had everything became nothing. So that we who had nothing could possess everything in Christ. And lastly, if we've learned anything from our series in 1 John, Christ's gift gave us security in Him and freed us from having to look for fleeting non-security elsewhere. How good is His gift? Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for Your great gift gift of yourself, Lord. God, thank you that you forever set the tone for what generosity looks like. Lord, you held nothing back and you gave us your very son, Father. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going